Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today we have with us a very interesting guy who has accomplished a tremendous amount uh, in a in a relatively short period of time, relatively in the booming bastion of Nashville, Tennessee. He is a has his own brokerage and uh, does sales and does leasing, and he does other things as well. Very very impressive. He is the founder of the Cobble Group. And he is Tyler Cobble. Tyler, welcome to Street Smart Success. Yeah, Roger, thanks for having me on, man. I'm uh, excited to be here. Please tell me I pronounced your last name correctly. You nailed it. Yeah, Cobble, just like the cobblestone. Okay, all right. Well, yeah, I've been playing a lot of Wordle on these games, uh, these these uh, like games online, word games, and that would be a hard one to, to get if you didn't know it uh, out of the gate. <laughs> yeah. But anyway. Yeah, I always have to spell it out. Yeah, uh, it's probably since you were like, you know, in first grade. Okay, so tell me uh, this, Tyler. Prior to you uh, getting into the into the wild, wily world of real estate, what what, what's the Tyler background? Yeah, so grew up in Nashville. Went to college at the University of Tennessee. Dropped out after my freshman year and got right into real estate. So I'd grown up working in construction for my grandfather every summer. And my senior year, after I graduated from high school, got into sales. Actually, sold Cutco knives of all things. And it was an incredible experience. My uh, my neighbor had actually sold knives to my mom. So I grew up with them and I had heard he made $10,000 one summer. And uh, being in air conditioning, I was like, man, that is the job for me. I'm tired of being out on job sites. So uh, joined Cutco. I made like 30 grand that summer. I uh, was one of the top sales reps in the Eastern region. And so that was kind of where I learned like, hey, I can, I can do this sales thing. And so uh, I was sitting in class at the University of Tennessee learning on a, a subject that I had honestly learned more about and more in depth in eighth grade, wondering what the hell am I doing here, man? Uh, it doesn't make any sense. And ran that out, you know, $30,000 over a summer, that's $120,000 a year and made my decision right there that I was dropping out and getting into something. I didn't know what at the time, but moved back to Nashville. Uh, worked for my grandfather as a project manager for about three months before I got a job offer from a real estate developer that I had actually sold Cutco knives to for his beach house. And uh, he heard I was back in town and wanted somebody in-house working on his project. So I got my real estate license, started leasing out office, retail, and industrial spaces, and the rest is history. You know, it's so interesting hearing that. I mean, in all these podcasts I do, and maybe it's uh, specific to real estate, probably isn't, although prevalent in real estate, where you're just entrepreneurial and you just... I can't tell you how many guys I talked to just like even yesterday that drop out of college that go, this is yeah. this is a waste of time. And, uh, you know, the guy I talked to yesterday, and we're not going to talk about him too much because we're going to be talking about you here, but he, he was like flipping cars in high school. He was buying and selling cars, yeah. <laughs> you know, like yeah. in high school. Uh, I mean, know. man, I used to uh, I used to sell vodka back when I was in high school. You know, water bottles of vodka, that was the big thing. 
Uh, very illegal. I uh, <laughs> would not recommend doing that today, but I've always kind of had that hustle in me of, you know, how can we go out and just kind of start a business and make some money? Yeah, uh, obviously. So a uh, little teeny little data point. Where is the University of Tennessee? It is in Knoxville. Okay, got it. Yeah, which which is nothing compared to Nashville. It actually, uh, spending a year in that city made me really fall in love with Nashville that much more. Oh, I, I couldn't imagine. I've actually heard, yeah, I've not heard great things about Knoxville. I haven't heard bad things, but it's just kind of, yeah, teeny, not much going on. Um, it's just kind of there. Yeah, just just kind of there. So so you had a very a very uh, logical progression from that first job because you were doing leasing of office retail and industrial. And when you opened shop, uh, that's what you did. And so what year was that? Uh, so I started my company in February of 2018. Um, so I, I was about four and a half years into the business at that point, and I'd been sitting in on all the development meetings, you know, every week for the last four and a half years, and that was how I learned how to put the, together development deals. And you know, I, I had put together a project while I was with that firm, forty-two townhomes down in Bellevue, uh, which is about fifteen minutes southwest of Nashville. And so I went through the whole process, ground up, you know, from finding the site, doing the engineering, the architecture, managing the the subs and the contractors, and and dealing with the whole sales process as well. So I felt comfortable enough going out on my own. So started the Cobble Group in February of 2018, just to focus on leasing and sales for commercial properties. Then I started Parasol, which is my property management company about six months later. And then in October of 2020, officially founded my development firm. Um, I had been doing investments, mostly value add, um, starting in 2019 up until that point. But we weren't big enough to where I needed a team. So I didn't have it officially as a business. Until until October 2020, and now we've got four employees at that firm. Okay, and when you said you were doing mostly value add, what specifically were you doing, and what asset? Yeah, so I bought four office buildings in 2019, uh, mostly Class C uh, neighborhood office buildings. Fixed them up, made them as nice as you know Class B in the area, uh, but because we bought them so cheap, we were able to rent them out as really a Class B or B minus product at Class C rates. So we were incredibly competitive with the product that we were delivering and our rates, uh, which made which meant they leased up very quickly, um, it, it, despite the pandemic. Actually, wow! I'm just like just floored by what you did, and you're still young, but even younger than you are now is just like incredible to me. In those assets, what you're talking about, like I am assuming smaller, just by virtue of kind of what you're describing, neighborhood office. Probably, I, I don't know. I'm envisioning literally because I was on your site. I'm envisioning, you know, you could have offices as small as 500 square feet, a thousand square feet, this kind of thing. I'm just wondering how is that faring today? Because my my understanding is that's actually been out of all of you know broadly speaking, office the least impacted by work from home or whatever because. You know, you still have people. If you're, you know, an accountant or a lawyer, or you're a solo solo practitioner, and your wife gets sick of you being at home, and you get sick of her. Right. You know, you'd still rather you're still more productive getting out of your home. So, I I guess the question is, how are those properties doing? Yeah, they're doing very well. So the first one, the first deal I ever did, it was five hundred seventy five thousand. We probably put about thirty grand into it, and I sold it in about sixteen or eighteen months. For seven hundred and fifty thousand, so very quick turnaround on that one. Uh, the next one was twelve thousand square feet. That one we bought for nine eighty. I put about two hundred and thirty thousand into it, and we sold it for a million six fifty. That that one was also like right at eighteen months. Um, and then the third one, 
uh, we, gosh, I can't even remember what I bought that for. Uh, but I ended up selling my shares to my partners uh, at a pretty good price. So they still own it. It's still doing really well. But we bought them all completely vacant um, and then leased them up. And then the fourth one I'm still sitting in, it's 28,000 square feet. And I bought it. It was about 40% occupied. And today it's 95% occupied. Uh, and it's doing very well. So you, we're going to hold it. And you're going to hold it. So I, I guess, you know, this is, this is rhetorical, but I ask anyway. So, you know, you see that vacant building and you just, you know, for, I guess from having grown up there, from having, you know, coming out of college, being a leasing guy, you just look at it and go, I know that if I do A, B or C to this thing, I know I'm going to lease it up. And, and that's pretty much what it boils down to. In other words, in your mind, you don't see it as, as risk. Is that correct? No, not at all. I don't see, I actually see them as less risky because I don't have to adhere to current leases that are under market that I've got to sit on for a while. Gives us the opportunity to come in, completely turn the property around and lease it up as, as we would like uh, and get the rates that we would like, the tenant base that we would like. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit tougher to finance on the front end, uh, but these are smaller deals. Uh, but they, you know, I mean, as you heard with some of those numbers earlier, you can get some pretty big pops out of them, uh, at least percentage wise compared to how, how, uh, how much they cost. So, um, yeah, I mean, they've, they've done very well. Mm. Wow. So on those first handful of deals, uh, and you talk about partners, would you, would you syndicate these or was it just, hey, a handful of guys just put in an amount of money? Or, or would you, if you were the lead guy, would you take a, a promote or like how, what was the capital structure typically? Yeah. So three of them were just partnerships. I just grabbed some people that knew me pretty well and they threw some money into it. Uh, the fourth one, um, which was the second one I bought. So the 12,000 square foot deal that I bought for 980, that one was my first syndication. Um, so we raised about $400,000 in equity for that. We did take a promote. We took an asset management fee, an acquisition and disposition fee. And then my brokerage team leased it up. My property management company managed it. Um, it was pretty great. I mean, on that deal, I think I made like six or seven different streams of income uh, without really overfeeing the deal because they were all market rates. And, and we got our investors a, a phenomenal return. I think it was like a 29% IRR. Mm. Wow. So you, you've done and are doing a lot of things. What would you say as of now, what is your like main focus or is there a main focus? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're really dialing into our more community-focused projects. You know, we've, we've always kind of had this small business focus uh, with what we're doing because I like working with small businesses. I think that they, are the, they really are the fabric of our communities and they give so much more back to our neighborhoods. And now we're just looking at ways that we can do that at scale. So, you know, I did them on a couple of smaller projects. Now we're doing some fairly large projects. Um, you know, I've got 30 plus acres here in Nashville and Madison, uh, which is just on the other side of East Nashville. And we're master planning that for about 1.5 million square feet, uh, well over a thousand apartments, a few hundred thousand square feet of office and, and some ground floor retail. And that'll become basically the city center of Madison. Um, I've got another project going on right outside of Chattanooga called the Peerless Mill, which is a former wool mill. It's a little over 1.4 million square feet on 32 acres. And at one point, it was the largest wool factory in the United States and maybe the world. I, I haven't been able to confirm that. Um, at its time, it was built as early as 1910. They made building, you know, there's like 29 buildings there. So they just kept adding on to it. But that one, we're doing essentially a self contained city. I mean, we are developing a true mixed-use property. You know, a lot of people say mixed-use and it's just office and apartments or retail and office or something like that. I mean, this will have office lofts, apartment lofts, retail restaurants, a brewery, distillery, a grocery store, a vertical farm, 
um, and some true light industrial. So it will literally have everything as, as well as entertainment. We're planning on a, an outdoor amphitheater um, and some other, you know, maybe a shooting range, maybe some indoor paintball, you know, stuff like that. And so are you going to operate it as well or are you going to sell it at once it's developed? We'd like to hold it forever. I mean, that's one of those projects that I, I can't believe I got my hands on that at 30 years old or 29 is what I guess when I bought it. You know, it's it's kind of a dream project. So the fact that we get to kind of build out this city, you know, in 29 buildings and 32 acres, it's a really unique opportunity. We didn't raise private equity for it. We just I just brought in two friends, and we are taking it one bite at a time. So we're we're going to do one building, you know, lease that up, refinance based on the new value, throw that cash into the next building, and and just continue it on. So we're we're anticipating that being probably a 15 to 20 year project. Wow. How how is it getting uh, financing for that kind of a project at this point? Oh man! Um, well, fortunately, we closed on it uh, April of last year, so it was right when everything was good. Now it would be a very different story, um, probably almost impossible to finance. But it was uh, it was pretty good back then. Uh, you know, the biggest issue that we had with it being a former wool mill was uh, a lot of uh, environmental potential issues, and that had scared off a lot of potential buyers. And, you know, I kind of read through some of the reports. Nothing seemed too crazy to me or something that we couldn't handle. And turned out I was right. I mean, everybody was still scared. You know, the city was scared. The seller was scared. They didn't know what was going on. We got in there and basically found like a 10 by 10 foot area of of soil that needs to be removed and, you know, some lead paint and asbestos. But that's nothing that isn't uh, too easy to deal with. So what was the use or what is the use of, of the property now? Yeah. Yeah, so there's uh, there's a handful of tenants there at the moment. We just put in two new tenants this week, but we've got it's mostly light industrial. So Prater's Flooring is there. They're the largest flooring manufacturer for the NBA and the NCAA on their basketball courts. Absolutely amazing business. Uh, they've created a lot of local jobs, and they've got just a, a phenomenal product. And then we've got Amigos Restaurant, which is a Mexican restaurant. It's a, a local chain. They've got six locations. This is actually their number one location out of the six. Uh, and then we've got a handful of just smaller tenants here and there. We've got you know a pallet manufacturing company. I've got a construction company. Uh, we're about to do some of our own projects. Um, so I'm looking at opening up a packaged liquor store there. We're going to do some contractor storage, um, which is a really interesting niche that I don't think a lot of people talk about, but it can be very profitable. Um, as well as maybe you know kicking off the the F and B side of the of the property with with a bar. Dude, you you, you do a lot of stuff. Did you say contractor storage? I did. I did. Yeah. I would love to talk about that because people don't really um, think about that very often. But we had initially looked at... uh, We have a 28,000 square foot building that we just put a new roof on. And initially, we were going to do self-storage there. And we may still do self-storage in that building. We're we're still running through our numbers. But contractor storage is something that is very interesting because it's it's an even lower price point to get into it. And uh, there's a very high demand for it. So, you know, if you look at uh, the industrial market over the last 10 years, flex space is in incredibly high demand, but nobody's building it because a lot of the industrial guys are focused on your bigger distribution and logistics channels. And the cost of construction makes it almost cost prohibitive. I mean, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. We've, we've tried to do it and, and we can't figure it out. Uh, but contractor storage is very simple. I mean, it's, you know, uh, we're looking at a 15 by 20 foot chain link fence, uh, 300 square foot area. Eight feet tall with netting on the top. Um, it'll have you know lighting, um, some power in there, and you know key card access with security cameras and loading docks and a ramp. Um, and so it's for contractors. You know they're having to order a lot of their materials in advance right now, um, and they historically had to do that anyway. 
Um, so, you know, drywall, studs, toilet fixtures, all, you know, anything, uh, they'll order it in advance, but then they got to store it somewhere. And so they can store on site here in a secured uh, fashion without having to take up any space on their yard or, or pay an exorbitant amount. So uh, it's a pretty good option if you've got some space out there that you're trying to figure out what to do with. Uh, but you don't want to spend too much money. I mean, it's probably half the price of self-storage, which is already inexpensive. Mm. And is there is are these like half, uh, are the space like uh, a percent outdoor and then a percent indoor for for stuff that they would, uh, you know, that you wouldn't put inside a tractor, or, you know, some out, you know, a bobsled, this kind of thing. Not a bobsled, yeah. but you know what I'm talking about. Uh, oh, yeah, of course, bobcat. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we could definitely do some industrial outdoor storage. We're trying to keep the property looking nice and clean and not like a you know okay. giant outdoor warehouse. So we're, we're not offering that at this time. Um, but this is just all stuff that you need under roof, relatively temperature controlled. Um, you know, you could, you could do both though, right? I mean, I've seen plenty of projects where they have indoor and outdoor storage um, offerings, which can be pretty nice. Mm. So, so what I'm getting is that your focus, Tyler's focus now really is very much develop, development as opposed to the, the cobble group, or I, I don't know what, it, it, maybe this is all within the cobble group, but specifically the brokerage firm, the, the leasing and sales. Is that just run pretty much by itself without you kind of having day-to-day and you're really focusing on this bigger, exciting stuff or like what is what does it look like now? Yeah, so I'm still very much involved in the brokerage uh, firm. You know, I, I really head up more of the business development and the mentorship of my agents now. Uh, but I've got some amazing guys on the team that are just really kicking ass, and and they're they're doing better than I ever did, um, which which you know you always love to see. So I've got five brokers on the team now. Two have actually just started with us this week, so I'm currently onboarding and training them, uh, which is which is going to be fun. Uh, but they they handle everything. So I've got one guy that you know they kind of do a little bit of everything depending on what we need. But I've got one guy that focuses mostly on triple net investments across the country. One guy that focuses more on hospitality and food and beverage, and then you know the the other two guys. We'll see what they kind of end up wanting to niche down in. Um, one guy does more apartments and medical, so we've got a nice variety of of offerings on the brokerage front. Okay, so if you say like in the apartment world, does that include leasing or is that just sales? Yeah, it's just sales. I mean, on on the apartment front, my property management company does manage multifamily. And they will lease up multifamily apartment units there. Uh, but on the brokerage side, we don't touch that. Right. What is the niche of the brokerage firm, you know, in the in the market that it serves? Yeah, we're really boutique. I mean, you know, we we focus very heavily on East Nashville and Madison. So, you know, we have always traditionally done a fair amount of leasing, but we're moving more into sales. And so we typically work with uh, newer investors, you know, and newer doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you haven't bought a property yet. It could be you've bought, you know, three to five properties and you're still looking to grow that portfolio. We kind of play in that, you know, one to $20 million range on, on the sales side. Um, so we're, you know, our clients are not quite institutional. You know, we've, we've dealt with those in the past and there's nothing wrong with it. It's just typically not our customer base. And, uh, you know, but they're not competing with your typical mom and pops trying to buy, you know, under a million dollars. Is the most of that, uh, those transactions, are you representing mostly buyers or are you representing mostly sellers or is it half and half or what does that look like? Yeah. So historically, it's been more sellers um, than it has been buyers. But in the last two years, we've really made a shift. It's honestly because of our YouTube channel. 
Uh, we're getting buyers from all over the country now. So we represent more buyers than anything else. And, and, and are these guys, you know, guys in California, you know, or New York, you know, high, high net worth individuals that just want to be in Nashville and they're looking for triple net stuff. And, and is that how, is that what that's been? Yeah. Yeah. So we've got a fair amount of, of clients from all over the country. You know, you can name them all, right? California, Texas, uh, Chicago, New York, uh, that are, they're all looking to invest in Nashville. But then triple net, we can represent people across the country in doing triple net investments. So we've got, like we just closed a deal in North Carolina for an investor out of California. I closed a deal in Texas for an investor out of Atlanta. So we're, we're really all over the place with that, which is, which has actually been a lot of fun building because it's really opened up the boundaries within which we can invest or within which we can advise our clients. So here I am, I'm in Northern California and I go to you to find me a triple net and you could basically broker that word anywhere, right? So in South Florida or, you know, uh, Corpus Christi or whatever the heck it is. That's exactly right. The location doesn't really matter to us. I mean, you know, we'll fly out and look at the property if our client needs us to. We typically do that so that they don't have to. But and, and of course, we've got our areas that we recommend, right? The Sun Belt is typically where we are saying to invest, but we will have clients that say, "Hey, I want to invest in Illinois or you know uh, Wisconsin." Um, we we very much recommend against California, New York, and some of these other places for for more of these uh, our, for our kind of client. But yeah, we'll we'll do a deal in Kentucky, Texas, New Mexico. Doesn't really matter to us. Very very interesting. What percent are, you know, food? It seems when, when I think triple net, you know, I think Chick-fil-A, I think Starbucks, you know, Kentucky Fried, is, is that, yep. what percent is that? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's probably over 50% of the clients that we're representing are going into food because, you know, when you get drive-throughs, especially right now, I mean, they're just doing really well. But we do have a fair amount of clients that are buying other types of properties. I mean, the one that we did in Texas, that was a self-storage deal. You know, I mean, not not quite a triple net deal. Uh, but we can still represent a client doing that. Uh, the one that we closed in North Carolina, that was a, a take five oil. You know, those are doing really well. I mean, I, I think uh, as long as you can mitigate the environmental concerns uh, for the future, which, you know, is pretty easy to do nowadays, uh, those are great. I mean, yeah, we're moving towards electric vehicles, but oil vehicles are going to be around for quite some time uh, even after that. So uh, as long as they're in a good location and, you know, there's something else that you could do with it in the future, those are great investments. You know, I am on a uh, an email distribution list because for a minute uh, about the way time goes by, it, it, it honestly might almost be eight years ago or something. I was con- I was trying to figure how I wanted to deploy some money at that time, and I looked at triple net, and the you know the cap rates were so low, it made me want to vomit. And so I, I guess what I'm wondering is, given interest rate environment now, as you said, that things changed about a year ago, last April. And I still get those emails. It doesn't look like triple net. Like it doesn't look like the cap rates have really gone up or is particularly attractive. And I, it makes me think that there's still just a ton of money. And, you know, a lot of people think it's in just the most incredibly conservative investment. So I guess what, what does the landscape look like pricing wise? Yeah, that's, that's a, a good question. I mean, it's, it hasn't changed. You know, we would have thought in September. Uh, that at least by now, with where interest rates started rising back then, that that we would have seen some dips in prices. Um, but what we're noticing is that there's still a fair amount of cash buyers out there who are selling other properties and doing a 1031 exchange. So a lot of these sellers are not changing their their values. Um, I think in reality, property values have come down uh, just because of where interest rates are. But 
you know, to a cash buyer, it doesn't really matter. They might be able to get 50 basis points higher on a cap rate. And to them, that's still a deal because, you know, they were planning on a six or a six cap anyway. So if they can get a six and a half cap, good for them. You know, those investors are more so looking for the depreciation and the uh, the equity growth that you'll get out of those projects versus the cash flow. Mm, interesting. You know, in, in the triple net world, I, I kind of, I don't know what you know about it, but it seems to me like where you can get the best return. And of course, now you get into incrementally higher risk the, the more you, you know, confront the following variables. But if you're willing to go to a secondary or a tertiary market and you've got, you know, a year left on a lease kind of thing, that's where you might be able to get an eight cap or a nine cap. And it's kind of like when you were buying your office buildings in, in, in Nashville vacant, where you just, you knew that it wasn't risk to you. You knew you could get them you know, filled up and et cetera. That seems to me to be the way to make money in, in triple net. And then it's just a, a, a matter of, or, or a lot of money in triple net. Then it's just a matter of being knowledgeable enough and smart enough so that you don't you know, stub your toe and, you know, wind up with, you know, the property sitting vacant for three years or something like that. That's exactly right. I mean, it depends on what your investment goals are. You know, when you're, when you're younger and you're first getting started, you have to be a little more aggressive, right? You've got to go for those bigger equity plays, take the bigger risk in order to get a bigger lump sum of cash so that you can start to take on the more passive stuff. You know, we, uh, like, for example, I I bought a a 1.7 acre piece of land here in Nashville last year. Uh, with uh, with a, with one partner, and we went. It was zoned for eleven or twelve residential units. We went through a rezoning, uh, took the risk of being able to get that, got it rezoned for sixty three units, and now we're selling it. Uh, we bought it for six fifty, give or take, um, and now we're under contract at two point one million. So you know that was the risky move. Now the next one, my partner and I are looking at just ten thirty one exchanging into like a Starbucks because we're looking at it going cool. We took the risk. Let's take all that cash and put it into something safe, and let's go take another risk on another project while we're just collecting that income um, and letting that property appreciate. Yeah, right. Exactly. I have a non-linear question here, and um, I know you do manage some multifamily, but it doesn't sound like it's the thrust of your focus. That's um, right. Yeah. So I, I guess so. It is non-linear, but I'm sure you have an opinion on this, and I'm sure you have knowledge of it. Uh, that market has been notoriously white hot multifamily in Nashville, right? You know, they're like one of the top is markets that have just boomed like crazy. What's that market like now? And and it probably depends on sub market and and you know the asset class, whether it's A, B, or C. But just in general, are things cooling off, or or are, are there any operators that you know got are going to get into trouble with crazy you know floating red floating bridge or What's the general tenor of multifamily at this point in Nashville? Yeah, I mean, I started advising my clients against buying multifamily about five years ago. Uh, back then, I didn't see the value in it. I, I just really didn't. It, the cap rates were too low. There's too much risk. Uh, there's not enough meat on the bone for those projects. But you know, the the real estate investor groups of the world, the podcast, everybody always talks about multifamily. Oh, you've got to get into multifamily. Well, you know, that was fine back in 2016, uh, you know, when cap rates were still reasonable and there was enough meat on the bone of these projects to where you could fix up a unit and rent it for hire. But now that product isn't really there anymore. I mean, think about it. There's there's only so many apartments that were built in the 1980s that could be fixed up, right? We're kind of past being able to do that. And, you know, I don't know if you saw the article a couple of days ago that came out of the Wall Street Journal, but multifamily syndicators that bought properties within the last two to three years are getting absolutely crushed. I mean, completely crushed because they bought these properties at incredibly low cap rates. 
with a lot of it uh, being you know adjustable rate mortgages, and with those interest rates going up, they're they're completely underwater. I mean, there's a, there's a group out of Houston that just lost. I want to say it was like 3,200 units because they, yeah. they just, you know, I mean, he leveraged all of his other properties to buy this multifamily portfolio at a, an insane cap rate and, I mean, lost everything. And, you know, it's just whenever I see that many people talking about investing in something, I'm like, all right, I'm going to go find something else. I'm not even going to go <laughs> close to that because, you know, you, you start getting this Wall Street money out there that's willing to take a 3% cap rate because they just need to place the cash somewhere. Your your regular guys can't compete with that, and it's not even worth trying. To be honest, I mean, I I don't get out of bed for a three cap. I won't get out of bed for a five cap. Yeah, I eloquently said. And with your brokerage, um, and this is just my lack of knowledge. And you know, if 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 you're not comfortable answering this question, that's fine too. I don't know if it's appropriate or not. But what I was going to ask is, what's the typical splits you have with your agents at the brokerage firm? You know, the house versus the agent. What do they typically get? Yeah. So since I generate a lot of leads, I mean, I'm just giving the, them to these guys. We'll do a 50-50 split on those, which is pretty traditional in the marketplace. But where we really differentiate ourselves from everybody else is any deal that they source and close on their own, they've got a 70-30 graduated split that goes up to 85-15. And then once my brokers hit $100 million in lifetime sales with us, they're on a permanent 90-10 split. So uh, it's, it's very much uh, in the broker's favor to be with us for a long time. Um, and to go out there and source their own deals. So, you know, my, I give them a ton of leads. Like, I mean, I, 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 even I am surprised sometimes at the amount of deals that we're able to generate. So, you know, that'll help them kind of keep the lights on and, and they, they can make really good money doing those. But I really want them incentivized to go out there and do their own deals. Yeah. I, I understand. Are, are the leads, uh, they get a ton of leads. Is this, is this, of late, mostly ones you've just been generating, the national ones you're talking about through your YouTube presence, or is that mo- where most of the leads are coming in these days? Or most of it's through YouTube and Instagram. Historically, it's been a lot of networking. You know, I've been really good about being out in the in the market, attending real estate investor events, and ULI networking with all the other you know residential agents, commercial agents, whomever, and uh, that has done very well for us. But now it's it's almost all coming through YouTube, uh, Instagram. And my blog. Mm. Uh, you are a incredibly talented guy because there, <laughs> you. you're welcome. Because not only uh, do you have a instinct, and I'm look. I mean, I know you work probably every you work you work hard. I, I get that. Um, but not only do you have an instinct for development, which is a whole other you know a whole other ball of wax, but you're also a great marketer. So uh, your skill set is vast and uh, you've got a, a heck of a range. On the brokerage side, and you said, you know, you're, you're kind of in that one to 20. So you're not dealing with the guy that can only buy something for 300 grand and you're not dealing with institutions that aren't interested. They won't get out of bed until it's 20. Um, That's right. I, I guess where the dust settles, this is more of a Nashville as opposed to like the triple net, you know, Chick-fil-A. What are the average size deals, whether it be yeah, office I mean, I would say, or... Yeah, I'd say probably average is closer in that like 2 to $3 million range. You know, we do a fair amount of like $1 million deals. Um, and then every now and then, like, you know, one of my brokers has a $9 million deal under contract. He's about to get another $9 million deal under contract. Um, we're working on a $15 million deal right now. So, you know, those, I would say the overwhelming majority is in the one to $5 million range. But then we have these bigger ones that, you know, kind of start to really skew uh, the average sales. Yeah. And those will probably continue to grow. 
because, you know, you, the, the guy, you know, buying the one today for two is, you know, so there's a small percentage of those and, you know, three to five and eight and 10 years, then they're going to be, those are going to be the guys buying the eight, nine and 10 and 12. And, you know, it'll just continue to, as, as you continue to, you know, build your, your base of clients. Um, yeah. I mean, and that's exactly what I tell my team is like, Hey, We've already generated the client. We've generated the lead. Just, you know, stay in touch with them. Make sure that you are doing everything you can to keep them happy. Because, I mean, I've had clients over the last five years that have bought something with us almost every year. And, you know, it might have started off as a smaller deal. And now we're doing, you know, two, three million plus dollar deals with with the same investor. And you start to add up that lifetime value. And it's it's pretty amazing, you know? Hmm. You know, you, you kind of weighed in on multifamily makes a ton of sense. So we talked about even pricing on the triple net, you know, drive through, you know, those prices really haven't moved too much. There's a lot of cash buyers coming out of 1031s. Interest rates aren't even relevant in the, in that, that case. Um, I guess in Nashville, in terms of, uh, industrial office or prices abating, are sellers coming down? Or, you know, what is, what's the, what's the market looking like there? Yeah. I mean, really, we haven't seen a lot of price shifting. Um, you know, Wayne is probably the biggest one because not only are interest rates high, but construction costs are really high. And so it's, it's tough to make these deals pencil unless there's a price reduction on the land. And so I think, I think there has been some shift on land prices, uh, which there absolutely have to be, but. You know, Nashville is one of the hottest markets in the country. It was the number one market to look out for, according to the Urban Land Institute, uh, emerging trends of 2023. And uh, it's the, the only city that has gotten that two times in a row besides San Francisco, uh, which has been a while since San Francisco got that. And it'll probably be a while before they ever see that again. But, you know, Nashville is, it's really interesting. Everybody wants to be here. The, the state is uh, income tax free. So for a lot of company relocations, it's a, a major destination. You know, it's really turned into a logistics hub because within a day's drive, you can reach 80% of the country's population. And, you know, the interstate access here is just, it's phenomenal. So, you know, I, I think Nashville is going to continue to rise. Uh, nobody here is anticipating it to slow down until probably around 2032. But, you know, I mean, Nashville's in its own bubble, right? I wouldn't say it's in a bubble. It's in its own bubble where, you know, you've just got so many people moving here and it's still such a small town that there's a lot of opportunity. Are, are, when you talk about people moving there, who's moving there? So is it kids that are getting out of college in the Midwest or, you know, and going, I'm just going to go to Nashville because that's like the coolest place to be? Or is it people transferring, you know, from other markets that are, let's say, older and getting a job in Nashville? Like what's the tenor of people that are moving there? I think it definitely skews younger, uh, which is always a good thing, right? Uh, but you know, you you do have a fair amount of middle aged and older aged people that are moving here. You've got a lot of grandparents that are moving here because their their kids moved here with their grandkids, and and they want to be close to them. and And it's a great state to kind of retire to. Uh, but you know, Nashville is is the Athens of the South. There's a lot of educational opportunities here, and uh, a lot of companies really like that. And so, when you've got a higher educated population. Um, along with you know some of the other benefits I mentioned earlier, it makes Nashville this this perfect storm of a city for sure. There's some big I want to say Goldman Sachs, but I think they opened a big office I think in Miami. But who, who are some of the bigger names that have put a flag into Nashville in the last five or ten years or whatever? Yes, yeah, so you're you're probably thinking of Alliance Bernstein, which which relocated right. their, their headquarters off of Wall Street. Uh, that was a big big deal. 
Um, we've got, you know, Oracle just announced 8,000 jobs on a 65 acre campus near downtown. We've got Amazon that's got, I want to say seven or 8,000 jobs that they're opening up. Um, you've got, uh, Ernst and Young. I mean, those, that just to name a few, I mean, those, those all brought, I think at a minimum 1500 jobs to Nashville. Um, and, and Oracle was the largest jobs announcement in Tennessee history. Wow. When was that? That was last year, maybe okay. two years ago. I got it. So yeah, so the engine, it, it, it just hasn't, it absolutely hasn't slowed down. What would you say is the most challenging thing that you do in your, uh, in your work? <laughs> Man, uh, honestly, raising capital. It, it is the bane of my existence. You know, we're, we're constantly raising capital for these syndications. And, you know, if I, if I was able to focus on that full time, I would be incredible at it. But, you know, as, as we've kind of discussed throughout this, this entire podcast, it's just not my, it's not my favorite thing to do. I love getting in on the design. I love finding the deals and, and really putting the project together. So, you know, if anybody listening is really good at raising capital and wants to partner with a developer, hit me up. I'm, I'm looking for a partner that could kind of handle that side of our business. But, um, it's, it's a pain. We, we pull it off. I mean, you know, the largest capital raise we've done is 10.8 million. I would say my average is kind of in that $3 million range right now of equity. And, uh, it's just every time we do a deal, I'm like, all right, here we go. It's just me calling people asking for money again. I, I would imagine I mean, stating the, uh, abundantly obvious that this year it's gotten brutal. Correct. Yeah. It's, uh, it's very different, but you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, you'd think that you'd be competing with treasury bills and things like that. And and we have been on the brokerage side, right? We've had some investors who go, oh, well, I could just get a 4% you know, return on a treasury bill. Uh, I'm going to do that. Well, there's a lot of reasons why you shouldn't be buying a treasury bill. They're up, one, they're going to go down by the end of this year. You won't be getting near a 4% return anymore. But um, on the investor side, you know, it, we're probably just not hearing from the people that may not be able to invest, but we're, we're getting close to closing out a $4.8 million capital raise on a hotel that we're doing. Um, and it hasn't been too brutal of a race. So it's in some ways it's, you know, you would expect it. And in some ways it's been kind of surprising. Hmm. Uh, well, I was just going to ask the dumbest question I said, is everything you do in Nashville, but you've already said you've done stuff in, in terms of development though, uh, is everything you do in Nashville? Yeah. So Peerless Mill, which is technically Rossville, Georgia, it's, it's on the border. It's 10 minutes south of downtown Chattanooga. That's the only thing that we've done outside. Um, we did look at a project in uh, New Braunfels, Texas, um, about a month ago. We just couldn't make it pencil. So, you know, we're comfortable looking at deals outside of Tennessee. It's just got to be, it's got to have an incredible story and be very compelling because, um, you know, we've got plenty of stuff to do here in Nashville. So for me to take my team away from that, it's got to really make sense. Yeah, I get it. And then Nashville's growing like crazy. What would you say are, are the key lessons you've learned? Ooh. Um, I mean, you've got to, like on the development side, you've got to ask people 700 times uh, to, to write their check. You know, people will fill out all the documents and then they'll forget to wire off the money or something like that. You know, I would say get everything in writing, you know, even if it's a family member, make sure that you have something in writing because when it comes to dealing with the amount of money that we're dealing with, people change. Um, and that's really unfortunate to see because I'm not that way. To me, money's just money. I'd rather do cool projects. You know, as long as the money's there for me to do the next cool project, let's keep going. But some people just get unbelievably greedy. And, uh, you know, every project that you do adds to your track record. So, you know, even if you're involved as a minority partner, um, which you're probably going to have to be for your first few deals, nobody's going to ask, you know, how much of equity did you own in that? You know, they don't care if you own two and a half percent or a hundred percent. 
uh, that still goes on your track record and it helps you with that next one. When you said especially with development, that the, the raise, what, what, what was behind that? What, what do you mean? Well, you said uh, you're talking about getting people to wire it, to, you know, to send the money in, and yeah. you know, staying out there. And you said, and especially with development. And I was wondering, what did what did that mean exactly? Oh no, I just mean you know, trying to get people to get their money in is always you know, everybody gets all excited about it. They love it. They're they're in, but then you've got to really get somebody to go to the bank and send off the wire. Mm-hmm. It's, is it's is it that, is is it that they get tentative? You think, or they they just get nervous, or like why is that? No, I think that there's just a barrier of entry, right? I mean, I wish that it was very easy for you to just click a button and wire and send $100,000. But for a lot of banks, you've got to go down, you've got to do it in person, oh, you've got okay. to take the time out of your day. Um, and so that that is, it's just a barrier of entry, you know? I see. I get it. Okay. Well, this has been an enlightening conversation as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Tyler, what's the uh, best way for people to learn more about you and if, uh, to engage with you and become part of the Tyler Cobble uh, trajectory? Yeah, I appreciate that, Roger. So on, on my YouTube channel, we're sharing a lot of educational videos on commercial real estate, how to, how to invest and, and you know, different ways of, of looking at commercial real estate as well as behind the scenes vlogs. Like, hey, here's how we did this project. Um, that's just under my name, Tyler Cobble. And if you're wanting to connect with me and actually talk to me, then Instagram is the best way. That's at commercial in Nashville with underscores as spaces in there. Or you could probably just search Tyler Cobble and it'll pull up. But um, I'm, I, I respond to almost every DM on there. So feel free to hit me up. Got it. Well, uh, this has been fantastic. And uh, I look forward to doing this again with you. Um, I, I have a feeling it will be every bit as interesting and you'll have your hands in a million other interesting things, man. You're not, you're not a guy that's going to slow down anytime soon. That's right. We'll see where the path takes us. Thanks All for having right. me on, Roger. You got it. 